Hi, you're listening to Silenced, discussing censorship and fandom. I'm your host, Hilary Hensley, and this week's episode is about the positive benefits of fandom. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Silenced. Uh, this is episode number two. I hope you enjoyed the first one. This is me, Hillary, with y'all again. And I wanted to talk about some of the benefits of being in fandom today. So I really wanted to briefly get into a uh, history of fandom. There has been fandom for as long as there have been things to be fans of. And of course, there are really, really popular fandoms and not so popular fandoms that has always been the case. Uh, one of the most popular fandoms you can be a part of, of course, are sports fandoms. We'll get more into that later. But for some of the history of fandom, we're going to talk about when fandom wasn't on the internet. So there's been fandoms before the Star Trek fandom, but I really want to get into the Star Trek fandom because they were the first fandom to have a mainstream slash ship, and that was, of course, between Kirk and Spock. But Star Trek fandom started out in zines. People would uh, publish zines that had fan fiction in it and news in it about the fandom. And uh, then it went on to conventions that were organized by fans. And as a really interesting point, I want to talk about who was doing these zines and who was organizing these conventions. Now, obviously, fans were. But these fans were mostly women who were uh, publishing zines and organizing conventions. The first Star Trek conventions were very much organized by women. And I think that's important to connect that with the first episode. If you haven't listened to the first episode, please go ahead and do that. Because we've talked about sexual pleasure uh, and how subversive that is for women and to explore that for themselves. And the fact that Star Trek zines were being put out mostly by women and that the conventions were organized mostly by women, I think is a very big indicator of fandom in itself. So I talked about sports fandom. Bear with me through the uh, segue. But I talked about sports fandom, and sports fandom is very male-oriented. Not that there aren't women in sports fandoms, but it presents as male. You see this because the most popular sports are in the United States are football, baseball, hockey. And all of these sports are very male-dominated. In fact, there are no women that play in professional football. There are no women that play in professional uh, baseball. There are no women that play in professional hockey. And uh, women have softball, but they, they're not allowed in baseball. And these tend to be the biggest sports. There are watch parties for the Super Bowl all the time. Millions of dollars in advertising are spent every year for this. Uh, there are also World Series watch parties. It's also a very big sport. There are tons of playoffs that lead up to the event. 
And uh, this is a very male-dominated culture. Like I said, not that there aren't female fans, but we know it's male-dominated because when we look at female sports, sports that have women mostly playing in them, like softball, uh, like the female, the women's soccer team in the United States, comparatively to male sports like softball compared to baseball or um, the women's soccer team compared to the male soccer team or even sports where they are allowed to play not against each other but they're allowed to play like with tennis you have women's tennis you have men's tennis you can see that the women are not as celebrated and they're not as paid as much, which to me is a huge indication that women aren't as respected in sports, that it's very much a man's arena. The women's soccer player, the women's soccer players in the United States, uh, the professional team, are paid a significantly less amount than the male soccer team, and the male soccer team is significantly worse than the women's soccer team. So yeah, just think about that how fandoms can be separated into men fandoms and women's fandoms. Not that there aren't men fandoms and typically women's fandoms or that there aren't women and typically men's fandoms, but yes, they're very much separated. There's very much a line there and uh, Star Trek falls pretty squarely into women's fandoms. Women mostly started the fandom of Star Trek. In fact, when Star Trek first came out, uh, a lot of critics said the same thing, that it was fake science for women. It was not well respected. A lot of people treated it as a joke. And in fact, it was a woman that uh, started, well, not started, but put Star Trek on the air. So Gene Roddenberry was the, uh, was the, was the creator of Star Trek. But the person who got it on the air was actually Lucille Ball. And I want to talk about how that happened. Uh, they were pitched to a lot of different studios. That's, you know, what happens. Everybody turned it down. And Lucy was president of Desilu Studios at the time. Desilu Studios was the studio of her and her husband, Desi Arnaz. Desi Arnaz and her were already divorced. Desi had sold his share to Lucy. Lucy was president of Desi Lou. So her advisors told her, the other people on the board at Desi Lou told her not to do this show. They didn't think that it was worthwhile. They thought it was really odd. And Lucy really stood up for it. She really wanted to do it. And she got into an argument with her advisors and uh, she, her, their advisors said, no, we're not going to do this show. We don't think it's appropriate for the studio. And Lucy told him, you know, you know, go to my office and look at the door. What does the door say? I'm like, okay. So said, well, it said Lucille Ball, right? What did it say under the door? And they said, well, president. And she was like, yep, that's right, president. We're doing it. I don't need your permission. 
were doing this show. And that's how Star Trek got on the air. Because Lucy didn't listen to anybody else. And she said, I like the premise of this show. It is going on the air. And that is what happened. So we have a woman to thank for it being on the air in the first place. And as a sidebar, Lucy was probably like really gung-ho about this because when she was first starting I Love Lucy, people complained. Nobody wanted to put it on the air because of Desi. Lucy and Desi, of course, married in real life, and he plays Ricky on the show of I Love Lucy. And nobody wanted to put it on the air because they were adamant about Desi playing Ricky. And Desi, of course, was Cuban and Lucy was white. And everybody told him nobody's going to buy an interracial couple on mainstream television. And Lucy thought that was ridiculous because Desi was actually her husband. How can you not believe that that Ricky is her husband when Desi is her husband? What they did was they went out and did vaudeville acts all across the United States. People gobbled that shit up and eventually they started their own studio of Desilu Productions, but they did get a distributor behind it of CBS. Because of the vaudeville act they put on across the United States. So yes, Lucy was told that nobody would buy it because it was an interracial marriage which is really interesting. (laughs) Not that it had anything to do with Lucy. Lucy didn't have anything to do with the writing of Star Trek or anything like that. She was just the uh, production president of the production company that it was done by. But it was very interesting because uh, in Star Trek, Kirk shares a kiss with Uhura And it's often credited as the first interracial kiss on air, which isn't true. That was Lucy and Desi because they were the first interracial couple on air. But it was the first kiss between a black woman and a white man that was ever on the air. And I think it's super, super interesting that it still kind of has Lucy behind it. Not, I mean, not fully... Gene Roddenberry is certainly deserving of the credit there, but I think it's an interesting coincidence that they wouldn't put her on the air because of an interracial relationship. And later the show that she says, no holds barred, is going to be on the air has the first kiss that's often credited as the first interracial kiss uh, on TV. But anyway, (laughs) so the Star Trek fandom was comprised of mostly women. And uh, actually, they even kept it on the air because it was going to be canceled by the network. And women put in a letter writing campaign that saved the show. So women were behind the fandom, the driving force of the fandom. Male critics were very much uh, derogatory toward Star Trek and its fandom. And it wasn't until later that Star Trek started being seen as a worthwhile show when it got more men into the fandom. Women's fandoms are usually are usually um, called into question. They're usually not taken seriously. Look at boy bands. 
So when the Beatles first started, they were, especially when they came over to the United States, when they came over to the United States and they were on the Ed Sullivan show, a lot of men, male critics were like, oh, they're horrible, they're bad. And most of the audience that came to Beatles shows were women. Not a coincidence. The Beatles were taken seriously a little later on. More men started to get into the Beatles fandom. They were even inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But when they first came to the United States, they weren't taken seriously at all. They were just a boy band that teenage girls loved and therefore could not be taken seriously by men. Star Trek, same way. So this is how fandom uh, really started through zines, through conventions, through the gathering of these fans outside of the internet, of course, because there really wasn't an internet to congregate on. When the internet became available, then fandom changed. It became more widespread, of course. It became more accessible. After all, fans in rural communities really didn't have access to zines and conventions. But when the internet became widespread and available, those fans suddenly did have access to fandoms. So fandom totally became more accessible and obviously it became bigger. And, and this is a really important note, it became anonymous. Before, you were interacting with your fellow fans. Maybe you weren't sharing everything about your life and who you were, but it was definitely not that anonymous because people saw you. They knew who you were. You came to the conventions. You were the ones buying the zines. You were able to be like identified. But on the internet, it became completely anonymous. Unless you want your identity to be known outside of the fandom community, inside of the fandom community, it's, it's not. Nobody knows who you are in real life. And most fans, from what I've seen, prefer it that way. It's not always the case. I've seen fans be pretty open about their identity and who they are outside of the fandom community. But a lot of the times people prefer to keep their anonymity. And I think anonymity is actually something that happened that was a huge factor with where we went with uh, fan fiction communities. So like Archive of Our Own, fanfiction.net. But at first, the internet fandom started out with GeoCities, which mainly like advertised um, zines. And then from there, they went on to like host their own fan fiction. And then other fan fiction sites started to be created, but mainly they were different. So you had different platforms for different things. So for like Buffy, you would have a fan fiction site that was just for Spike and Buffy as a ship. And then you would have fan sites that were Genfix. And then you would have fan sites that were Angel Buffy. And there is a fan site that I really like called Near Her Always. I don't know if it's still on the internet, but it was all Willow, Spike, and Angel together in a polyamorous relationship. 
very good. I have read almost every fic on this, on that site. If you're into that, hit it up. I don't know if it's still on the internet. Don't yell at me if it's not. But yes, very good. And then you started to have uh, things where mass, like, fic was collected, like um, fanfiction.net. I guess live journals, since it was one site, even though you had to go to different journals to find different fics. Uh, there's also Dream With, and now there's Archive of Our Own. Archive of Our Own, I think, is a huge step up in the fanfiction community. But let's talk about how anonymity uh, plays in with that. Well, I lied. <laughs> We're going to talk about one other thing first. So when fan fiction was on things like GeoCities and LiveJournal and separate fan sites, fanfiction.net, uh, people would put like fan fiction of their favorite books or, I mean, it works the same way today that it did then. But back then you would see a lot of disclaimers on fanfic that talked about, you know, I don't have a lot of money please don't sue me. These aren't my characters. I'm just using them from these stories. I'm not making any money off of this. When I first got into fandom, like I said, which was around 2011 with Buffy fanfic, the sites I went to were very much individual sites. And um, I don't know if a lot of these sites are still up, but almost every fic I've read in these sites had this disclaimer on it. And uh, I didn't know why. But, you know, later I found out it was because of companies or individuals going after people who were publishing fanfic. Anne Rice was a big person who did this. She would send out cease and desist letters to people who were writing fanfic. And the fanfic is protected by... Um, fanfic is protected by the fair use law. But a lot of people that were involved with fanfic were broke, poor. I mean, probably still the same way today. And when Anne Rice sent these cease and desist letters, they got scared. And they stopped writing the fanfic. They took it down because they couldn't afford to be sued by Anne Rice. I mean, there's no way they could afford that. So they did the safer route and just took it down. And I want to thank Fanlore. Uh, for helping out with this research. They have a whole thing on Anne Rice. So yeah, fanlore.org, if you're interested in where I got this information from. Uh, yes, but Anne Rice was a very big uh, deterrent from fan fiction. And Archive of Our Own kind of changed that as well. So let's talk about the ways Archive of Our Own is so great for fan fiction. So there are a few reasons why Archive of Our Own functions as it does. It is a, a very safe space for fandom. For one, let's, let's go into the anonymity reasons. It's a very safe space for fandom because you can go in and you can explore all you want to about different ships you might be interested in, different sexual kinks you might have, and you can do this completely anonymously. Maybe even your sexuality as a whole, 
and we'll get into that. But this function is as a safe place to explore your sexual identity, to explore what gets you off, to explore what ships you're into. And that's a very subversive thing. Fan fiction is very subversive in that functionality because as I mentioned before, women's sexual pleasure is seen as taboo. And when we embrace that, it's like sticking it to the man, you know? It's like saying, hey, no, I'm a human being. I'm going to explore what turns me on or what doesn't turn me on. And I think that's a huge subversive thing. So fandom allows you to explore what you like, what you are into, and that's very good. And as for Archive of Our Own, because they're not censored, it is one of the best places to go and find yourself. They're not censored. They're completely nonprofit. They have no ads on their site. So no corporations can come in and say, no, we don't support somebody having uh, BDSM fantasies. We're going to take them all off. No, we don't support LGBTQ content. We're going to take off all the slash and fem slash fic from the site. There's nobody that can be harassed like advertisers by aunties into taking off fic. So aunties can't come in and say incest fics are disgusting we won't use this site anymore. We'll tell everybody they're disgusting for using the site. If you don't demand from the, the site to take them off or you'll take off your advertising. That doesn't happen because there are no advertisers. So it makes it a safe space to go in and just explore yourself. And this is really, really important as a function of fan fiction, as fandom and for fandom in general it introduces sex positivity also like i touched on before a lot of people have discovered their sexuality through fanfic i know i am one of those people i have certainly discovered my sexuality through fanfic which is a little sad considering that i didn't get into fanfic until i was in my mid-20s I probably didn't have a name to put in my sexuality until I was about 28 or so. Uh, for those of you wondering, I am demisexual, which falls under the asexual umbrella. But I had never heard the term demisexual before until I read a fanfic. Until I read this particular fanfic that had a demisexual character in it. Demisexual means that you aren't sexually attracted to people until you get to know them, until you like them, until you trust them. And uh, I had no idea that that was what I was. I just thought I was weird. I do experience aesthetic attraction. I can look at somebody and say, hey, wow, that person's really good looking. But I don't experience sexual attraction until I get to know them. I can't pick up like a stranger somewhere and have my way with them because I'm not sexually attracted to them. I might be aesthetically attracted, but I'm not sexually attracted. And I didn't know that until I started to get more into fanfic, and there was just a character 
that happened to be done as demisexual. And it's like, this seems really familiar to me. And then I looked up a lot about demisexuality and it's like, wow, wow. I discovered what sexuality I identify with at 28 years old. I know some people don't find out until later. It just seemed like a really older age to me to be discovering who I was, who I functioned as, I guess. Not who I was necessarily, but, you know, what my sexuality was, how I functioned in a sexual sense. And I discovered that through fan fiction. I am certainly not the only person who has. In fact, if you have discovered your sexuality through fan fiction, I would really like to hear that story. So please hit me up on Instagram, Tumblr, Pillow Fort. My Twitter is not really working right now, but it is on my, you can talk to me on my personal Twitter, uh, which is just my name, Hillary Hensley. So find me there and talk to me. That's fine. Um, Twitter has kind of put me into Twitter jail for some reason, and I can't get out of it because it's saying my phone number doesn't exist. I sent him a help ticket. Hopefully it'll be resolved soon. I will tell y'all when it is. This information will be repeated at the end of the show. But yes, if you have discovered your sexuality through fan fiction, please let me know all about that. I'm very interested to learn about that. Um, I told you my story. I would love to hear y'all's. So the way fandom functions as a safe space for exploring your sexual kinks or exploring what you don't like is through tagging systems. So with tagging systems, you know if something is going to potentially squeak or trigger you. Squeaking is a little different than triggering. Triggering, squeaking is something that you just don't really care for, that you're kind of grossed out by, but you're not going to like get traumatized by seeing it. So just as a definition. So because of tags, it can function as the safe space. Even if the only tag that's used is creator chose not to use archive warnings, then you know there's probably something in there that's not going to be, you know, that it's not going to be a G-rated floating through the field of fluff and happiness kind of deal. It's not going to be unicorns and rainbows and sunshine. There's going to be something in it that might be a little squeaky. But you know that going into it. Also, with more specific tags like rape non-con or underage or uh, ship tags, you know what the pairing's going to be when you go in if you don't like a certain pairing. You can tell the searches not to give you that pairing for in the tags. So you don't have to see a pairing you're not interested in. You don't have to see a kink you're not interested in. If you're really against breath play, make sure that breath play isn't showing up in your tags. Make sure that you're not clicking on a flick that has breath play in the tags. Of course, you don't always know, like I said, because of archive creator chose not to use archive warnings and that's a legitimate warning it is a warning for that fic it's like i don't want to give up spoilers but there might be some of this 
stuff in the fic. So you know going in whether you think you want to do it or not based on the description. And sometimes authors will put author's notes in or in notes because they don't want to spoil the fic and they don't want to put spoilers in the tags. So they'll put in notes in their fic. In fact, I kind of recommend that you do this as an author, uh, as a fanfic author. Um, if you think there's anything majorly triggering in there and if you don't want to use regular tags because of spoiler alerts, which is perfectly fine, you're, of course, allowed to do whatever you want to. But maybe do um, author's notes and the end notes just so people know and uh, can see whether they want to read it. But yes, because of that, it tends to be a very safe community for uh, fan fiction. People can explore whatever kinks they might have, like rape fantasy, which can be very, very positive rape fantasy can be, because it helps uh, with control, right? So control with rape fantasy is about being in control of everything that happens, especially with the writer of the fantasy, but also for the reader. You can stop reading at any time. You have that control to push the back button and to stop reading. So, and that's true for any kind of fantasy, any kind of ship, any kind of fic in the fan fiction community. You certainly have the option to stop reading it, press the back button, don't read it again. Make a note, whatever. You didn't like this fic. It wasn't for you for some reason or the other. Yeah, just back the hell out of there and pick another fic. Uh, there's plenty of fiction to choose from on Archive of Our Own. There's tons of stuff you can get into. And if you don't like something, you don't like it. Just like any other thing you might be reading if you're reading a book and you don't like it, just put down the book. And the great thing about fan fiction is you didn't have to pay for it first. So you just go in there and you don't like it, you back button it, you find another one. It's not like you're shelling out money for it. Unless, of course, you want to donate to Archive of Our Own, which is you certainly uh, have the option to do and um, consider doing. You should consider doing if uh, you really enjoy Archive of Our Own if you're a creator or a reader. So this how fandom functions is a really positive place. And it also functions as a positive place due to other things as well, not just with, uh, not just with sex and sexuality and exploring those things about yourself, not just as this subversive place where uh, you can stick it to the man, <laughs> but also as a place that helps each other, helps and supports each other as fans. So with fan fiction, uh, not just fan fiction, but in fandom spaces in general, like Tumblr, like Pillow Fort, like Dream With, you can also have these very positive relationships with fans. Fans can befriend each other and they might stay on the internet, which is still a very relevant place to be 
I mean, it's still meaningful. You can be lifelong friends with somebody on the internet. And sometimes these friendships go into real life. They go off the internet and you're still very good friends. I'm sure there are people in the Star Trek community that met through fandom that are still very good friends today. So fandom can serve as a way to meet new people, as a way to have positive relationships enter into your life, not just through good friendships, through platonic relationships, but also through romantic relationships. So people have met their spouses through fandom. They've met their partners through fandom and had, have had long-lasting relationships with them. Of course, not all of them are long-lasting. People break up. happens in the real world. If you meet somebody at a bar, you might break up or you might be together 30 years. Who knows? And fandom works the same way. And uh, people have met their partners through here. So maybe you break up in the future. Maybe you're together after 40 years. But it happens. I'm sure people have met each other through the Star Trek fandom where they are still together today. And yes, that's another example of positive relationships entering your life because of fandom. You're meeting because you both like the thing and you want to talk about the thing. So that's how you meet and how you get to know each other. And eventually you find, hey, I really, really like this person. So yes, fandoms can absolutely have this super positive impact on your life. Fandoms I've also seen help people get out of relationships. So like toxic, abusive relationships. I remember seeing this one post on Tumblr where a a woman was in a relationship with her abusive partner and she had to get out and she didn't have any money to get out because her partner was controlling all of the money. So she set up a PayPal account and people contributed into this PayPal account so she would have money. And fandom helped her escape her situation because without it, she wouldn't have had the money to get out of the situation herself. And I'm sure it's not the first time that it's happened. I'm, I'm sure that it's happened with other people. In fact, if this has happened to you, if you've met your partner through fandom, if you've met your best fan- friend through fandom, if you have gotten out of an abusive relationship through fandom support, please let me know. That is stuff I'm hugely interested in knowing about. I will probably end up doing a listener episode. I will try to do one once a month. I'm not sure if I'm able to do one this month because I'm not sure if I'll have enough listeners to, frankly. But once I get enough listeners, I would love to do a listener episode every month where y'all like come to me with your questions, your comments, your stories, and I will put them on the air. Yes, I'm going to set up an email account. I will let you know of that email account after uh, in the next podcast. So look for that. And you can email me your stories about... Um, what I'm asking for, even about stories about what I'm not asking for. Please do that. But yeah, the email address will be in the next podcast. But until then, you can certainly get in touch with me through the other fandom sites that this podcast is on. But yes, I would love to do a listener story with y'all's, with y'all's stories. So please tell me about like any romantic relationship or any 
friendship that you got into through fandom that you're still in today. Tell me about uh, an abusive relationship that you might have gotten out of through fandom. Also, I'm aware that other, like, fandom has helped support each other outside of that. So, like, big veterinary bills have been paid through the fandom community. Also, I know rent has sometimes been paid through fans because fans help each other out sometimes. And I think this is just a hugely supportive and active community as a whole and very positive place to put your energy into. And the one place I didn't know uh, that I didn't really think about until I started following the blog um, AO3 Comment of the Day on Tumblr, I fully recommend this blog to follow. Uh, they do great things. Uh, super popular blog, popular for a reason. Seriously, I don't know what you're doing if you're not following this blog. So follow, follow the blog on Tumblr. AO3 Comment of the Day. But anyway, I started noticing some questions being written on there about accessibility features for fan fiction written on IO3, uh, Archive of Our Own, and uh, for people who use screen readers to read so they would be able to, you know, have it accessible through the screen reader. And truthfully, I had never thought of that. Like, when I write fanfic, I don't think there's anything, like, super inaccessible uh, in my fanfic. But, like, putting, um, putting artwork into your fanfic, you probably need to put a description under that artwork so people with screen readers can know what's going on there. So they can also enjoy the artwork and they can relate it to the fanfic. And, you know, putting a bunch of asterisks in is probably not good. But as someone who doesn't use a screen reader, I did not know this. I didn't even think about it. I wasn't really aware. And then people started putting in these questions on our uh, AO3 comment of the day. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I, uh, okay, it's good to know. My eyes are open. I feel kind of like an idiot now. But knowing going in how to make my fanfic more accessible, I think, is also super, super important. And I would not know this without the fandom community. Of course, I wouldn't be publishing fanfic without the fandom community. So, you know, but it makes me more aware of accessibility and not how and how not everyone has the same accessibility levels, which, yes, maybe I should have been aware of before. But as somebody who doesn't have to use these things, who doesn't use, use these things, not always aware, kind of ignorant to it. And it really opened my eyes up to this accessibility awareness. And I think that's something else that is positive that has come through fanfic. Another thing has uh, been learning language. So I've taken French for four years in college, and I took French for two years in high school, so six years of French. And I really don't know that much about French still, but occasionally I will try to read uh, fan fiction in French to try to uh, strengthen my French and, you know, to have access to other fanfic, of course. Of course, I want access to all the fanfic. And a lot of other people feel the same way. And it is 
is help them learn other languages. So in a lot of fanfic uh, communities, English is probably the most popular language to write in. And I've seen so many ask on AO3 Comment of the Day about how they've learned English to be able to get more hits on their fanfic, to be able to have their fanfic read in a, on a wider basis. And I was like, wow, I never even thought about fan fiction serving that purpose before to help people not only learn other languages, but to explore other languages because they would really want to read about it in the fanfic community. And I know I sometimes do it with French, but for some reason it never occurred to me other people were doing it too. Although I did know that a lot of like uh, English learners were writing fic in English because you sometimes see a note on Archive of Our Own that says, you know, English is my second language. Please be gentle with me. I have to say, I really commend those people. I know I couldn't write a fan fiction in French. There is no way in hell that I could do that, that I would have enough confidence in my uh, French abilities because even after six years of French, I still almost know like jack shit about French. So I, it is super commendable that people do that. And uh, I want to thank you for giving us more fanfic to read and for putting yourself out there because that is so, so brave and uh, impressive. Just like super impressive that people are out there writing fics in uh, a language that's not their first language, sometimes not even their second language. And it is just super impressive to me. But this is the, all the ways that fan fiction has served in a positive way. They help fan, fan fiction and the fandom community helps explore your sexual identity, what turns you on, the ships that you're into. It also helps explore your ships that you're not into, your no TPs, the ships that you really don't want to see. Uh, and that can help by reading those fanfics with that ships in it. It's like, wow, I'm super not into this ship. It can also help with kinks that you like and are into that get you off and that you are not into, that you're super squeaked by. And it's like, oh God, no, I thought maybe I was into this, but I am super not into this. And fanfic can help you explore that about yourself. It can also explore, help explore your sexuality and gender like it sexuality in general, <laughs> like in my case. Uh, it can help you with um, forming relationships in fandom, platonic and romantic. It can help by learning, uh, helping you learn another language. It can help by making you more aware to accessibility challenges. And it can help to be supportive through like getting people out of domestic violence situations or through, you know, just helping in general through financial hardships. And I don't think these aspects of fandom are explored enough. We see a lot of negative about fanfics like ship wars and aunties and things like that. And yes, that was my first episode, but I really wanted to discuss about how fan fiction can be the safe 
positive place. And when I mention a safe space, I don't mean, mean a thing that a space that's not going to challenge you. What I mean is a space that nobody will, nobody should be at least ridiculing you. So you can go into these spaces and talk about what you think might be weird or not socially acceptable, like certain kind of kinks like rape fantasy or being super into BDSM or having certain ships like Wincest. And it's a safe space for you to explore that or should be. You know, you do have aunties, but it should be the safe space for you to enjoy things without the, the burden of aunties. Like I said, I don't mean safe as a function of you should, like, always have rainbows and butterflies and just fluff and nothing should ever challenge you or make you question. That's, That's not what I mean. All right? I mean that as, as a function of tags and as a way to explore what you may think of or what other people may think of, what other people may think of as taboo. That's what I mean by safe space to, um, to further emphasize that. So, uh, fan fiction came from zines and conventions and spread to the internet and became this super huge place to where you can explore these things anonymously and more widespread. It's definitely more accessible for everybody now. And I really think that this is important to talk about as well. So again, as a reminder, please like let me know about any personal stories you might have about forming relationships in fandom, whether they're platonic or romantic, uh, discovering your sexual identity through fandom, uh, how fandom has personally helped you, what positive impacts you receive from fandom. And let me know that send in your stories to me. Again, I'm on Tumblr, uh, Pillowfort, and Instagram under Silenced Fandom. Uh, I do have a Twitter as well, but again, Twitter jail. So you can hit me up on my personal Twitter, which is uh, Hillary Hensley, uh, H-I-L-L-A-R-Y-H-E-N-C-E-L-Y. So you can definitely talk to me there. And please do so. I would love to do listener episodes like every month, once a month to do listener episodes. Uh, So yeah, talk to me about things. And let me know if you enjoyed this episode. Let me know if you have ideas for any future episodes. Just let me know about it, whatever you're thinking. So... Yep, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. Stay tuned for next week's episode on Saturdays, like always. And subscribe to this podcast if you want to stay, you know, up to date with all the episodes. So thanks for listening. 
Have a great day.